Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Uh, let me pray for us before we open the word and get into, uh, get into God's word this morning. Father, I, I ask that you would, by your spirit, do work in our hearts. Would you cultivate deep and meaningful life in us? Would you help us to be firmly rooted in your son, that we might be established and built up in him? Father, would you give us a vision for what it looks like to walk with you in this, in this day and in this time, for us to be the church, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Uh, Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today's really a pretty amazing kind of season to be a part of Redemption Church. We've just crossed over our fifth anniversary, and so as we walk through kind of this next season and celebrate what God's done in the first five years that he's established a new outpost for the gospel here in Edmond, Oklahoma, uh, we're also looking forward to the next five years and what it is God wants to do and kind of where he's pointing us, where he's orienting us. And we really spent a lot of time over the last six months praying and fasting and just asking the Lord, Lord, what, what is it you want for us? We're seeking more of you, more of your presence, more of your help, more of your mission, more of your, your effectiveness in reaching our city and we feel like God's answered those prayers in some ways. And uh, we just wrapped up a series called Engage. And the series uh, really looked at the first six chapters of Daniel. And as we started, we purposefully started the, the year off with that series because it was a series that, that we preached actually before we launched as a church. So we're kind of going back to our roots and remembering, you know, what were the, some of the things that God was stirring in our heart? But really that, that, that series focused on you as an individual, what does it look like for you as an individual in, in, in this time and in this place to walk with the Lord, to seek the Lord in the midst of a culture where we oftentimes find ourselves as an outsider, where maybe we find ourselves as an outsider in the way in which we view the world, in the way in which we view uh, our, our sexuality, in the way in which we view marriage, in the way in which we view the future, in the way in which we view education, the way in which we view uh, so many things in our culture, the winds are blowing in a certain direction. <laughs> and when we see what the scriptures have to say, we know that oftentimes the cultural winds that are blowing currently blow against what the scriptures teach. And so we looked at Daniel and just said, what does it look like for us to trust the word of God and trust that, that God's ways are best, even in the midst of a world that oftentimes is gonna push against us and push, push against our beliefs and push against uh, the, the things that we, that we believe to be true. And so over that time, Chris, would you hand me my water? I'm sorry, bud, you got a bit of a cough. Um, so as we think about what it's, what it's like to live in the world that sometimes is contradictory to us, we allowed that passage to encourage us as we, as we processed what that looked like. So now over the, over the next couple of weeks, we've kind of talked about what it, what it looks like to stand individually. What's it look like for us corporately, for us to stand as a church, as a community of faith, as a people operating together? And how are we going to operate in this day and age and in this world and in this culture? And so we're gonna ask ourselves some questions over the next few weeks and just say, you know, why are we here? Where are we going as a church? Where, uh, where, where do we feel like God's leading us? What does discipleship and church life look like in Oklahoma City in, in the next five years? Uh, what, what do we see on the horizon there? What does it mean for us to live together as a covenant community committed to one another, both relationally in terms of being a family, but also investing in the mission that we have as a people of God on mission with him? And what does it look like for you to kind of raise your hand and go, man, I'm in. 
Like you can count on me, I'm, I'm in for all of this. And so we're gonna be looking at that. In the early days of our church, we didn't have what we call, what sometimes is referred to as official membership in the church. And that phrase can kind of push people in all kinds of different directions. Sometimes you hear that and it feels like a membership of a country club, like, man, am I in or am I out? Or am I an am I insider or am I not? Sometimes you think of membership and it sounds a little bit more like, uh, like uh, you know, like you've, you've measured up and there's two classes of citizens. There's kind of these people that are the, the really strong people and they must be the, the members and there's everyone else that's like, dude, I don't know if I'm in that group or not. Uh, so when you talk about this, some of you had bad experiences. I mean, when I talk about membership, for me, it really is about how do we serve you and help you grow? It's about discipleship. It's about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. It's about us coming to the scriptures and just saying, Lord, what does it mean for me to be a part of the body of Christ? What does it mean to, for me to be one, uh, one among many whom you've called together to commit to, to live on mission here in this place in order to bring glory to God and good to our city? And so as we think about what that means for us, we're gonna process that over the next few weeks. But there, in some ways, nothing really changes. I mean, we're still the same people. We still have the same beliefs. We still have the same vision. And so in many ways, nothing's going to change. In other ways, some significant things are going to shift as we kind of commit together and just think through, you know, what is it that God's calling us to do? And kind of put some, some things on paper that as we continue to grow this church, we really want to avoid kind of drifting from who we are. You know, it's easy in any organization to have, have vision drift or mission drift that you kind of, you start off with a certain goal, you start off with a certain aim and over time you just begin to veer a little bit off course. And so these are some things that are really the goal is let's just put some guardrails up to make sure that in, ten, in five, years, five years from now that we're still on mission, that we're, still, that we're still being true to what God's called us to do, that we're still doing the things God has called us to do, but that we've seen more and more people enfolded into that mission and brought in in a way that they understand because uh, we're just trusting the Lord that in the next five years, there's gonna be people in this room that weren't here in the first five years. And so they don't know all the things that have happened up to this point. So we're just trying to create some processes around that so that those who come in in year six and seven and year eight, and they get to know who we are and what we're about and really what we're committed to as a church. And so um, several things we wanna do even in this season. And if you're new here on April the 28th, we're gonna have just what we call a connect lunch. And we're gonna go immediately after the service. We're gonna have a lunch together. And that's just a chance for you to come in, ask us questions, clarify anything you, you, uh, you might have. But if you're not connected in terms of a group, if you're not connected in terms of a serve team, if you're not sure kind of what this church is all about and you just, I mean, you wanna meet us face-to-face and ask some questions, that's your opportunity. It's gonna be the next best opportunity for you to come and just find out more about us. And so I hope that you'll sign up for that, that you'll put that on your calendar now. Uh, it's just a couple weeks away. We really want, uh, if, you're, if you're new here, we'd love to, to just put a face with a name and get to know you and answer any questions you might have so that you could get connected here. And then following this series, we're gonna be rolling out just some membership workshops. And so uh, w- those are chances for us to sit down and really get face-to-face with you to hear, and what does it mean for you to say, I'm a Christian, or to, to say, yes, I know, I've met Jesus and have a relationship with him. Uh, for us to be able to get to know you and you get to, to get to know us. And so we're gonna start with our leaders and ask them to come to a membership workshop. And then we're gonna continue to roll those out over the course of the summer. And so you'll hear more about those coming up in the days ahead as well. So let's get into this. Um, you kind of got the lay of the land, know where we're going, kind of see the big picture. That's where we're headed over the next few weeks and really why we've launched this series. So let me ask you this, what is the church? You know, in a sense, we, we all have some idea what a church is, right? It's a little white building on a hill in Vermont with a steeple and a cross at the top of the steeple. And we all know that building is a church and we have this image in our mind. Or if you grew up in Dallas, you know, it's, it's a church that's, you know, got an entire campus. You know, we, we've got all these different ideas about what a church is, but oftentimes we think of it as a building. We think of it maybe as an organization or a place in which people meet. But you know, when I look at the scriptures and when I study what the Bible has to say about the church, you know, it's actually much bigger than that. That the, the, the Bible doesn't refer to the church necessarily as just a building or a place where we go. It's not just a place where we gather, but it's actually the people the people of God, and it's actually much bigger than we oftentimes think about it. A simple definition of the church might be all true believers in all times and in all places. All true believers in all times and all places, that's the church. 
And, and obviously that extends, uh, let me just ask you a question. Does that mean we've got every one of them here in this room? Seriously, that's not a hard question, folks. Like, I'm just making sure you're awake, that you're alive with me. No, this does not define all Christians in the universe. This is not the whole church. When we are a part of the church, we're a subset of the church, but the church is much bigger than we are. In fact, the church is scattered around this entire globe. Not just that, but you know, the church has existed for millennia. And so you're talking about all believers in all times, in all places, and together that makes up the church. Christ, uh, Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ died for the church, not just for individuals, but for all the people that he wanted to save and make to be his bride. Ephesians 1, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The scriptures use all these different metaphors for, for the church. It's the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It's, uh, it's a building that he's putting together. It's living stones. It's a holy nation. It, you get all these different metaphors and ideas that the scriptures use to describe what the church is. Jesus himself in Matthew 16 said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Fascinating statement that Jesus makes about the church. I will build my church meaning somehow he's still intricately involved in our lives, in what's happening in this room, that when we gather together, somehow Christ is at work building up this thing called the church, that he's active, that he never sleeps or slumbers, but that he's always at work. Even in the days where you are tired, he's at work. Even in the days where you're not sure that, that it's worth it, he's at work. Even on the, on the days whenever you come here and it feels like God is present immediately. It's Christ at work that's building his church. When you experience the love of those around you, it's Christ at work experiencing the church. When someone teaches you something from the word and you go, oh, I get it now. That's Christ at work building his church. And he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let me ask you a question. What are gates used for? Keep people out right? Gates are usually, you think of a gated community, gates are typically used as protection. You know, a gated community is a place where you assume that all the undesirables are going to be locked out behind the gate so that you can be safe on the inside. Who is it that has the gates in Jesus' statement? Who put these gates up? Hell. Satan erected gates to try to keep Jesus out because he's scared of him. That's the image you get here, is that Jesus says, I am on the attack, I am on the move, I'm building my church, and you know what? Hell can't stand against it. And so often we flip that around and we think, man, we're on retreat, we're fearful, we're, 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 we're backing up and just afraid that something bad's gonna happen. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus says, hey, I'm gonna build my church and nothing can stand against it. He's, on, he's, on, he's going forward. He's secretly moving in an amazing way to build his church. Now, these are tremendous statements, right? If you understand what he's saying, well, you have to, you have to realize that the church is not some sideshow event on the planet. Sometimes if you, if you watch the daily news, we, we, don't, we may not seem like we play a big part, but if you look at what the scriptures have to say, and the church is not the sideshow, the church is the main event, that Christ is busily building his church. It's interesting, the church belongs to Jesus. It says he's, he's the head of the church and all authority in heaven and earth belong to him. The church is, is made up of all those who are saved by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, called by Jesus, empowered by his spirit, gifted by God and sent into the world on attack in order to achieve all that he wants to achieve in our midst. That's what the church is and what it is that we are to be about. That's why it's silly when people say, I love Jesus, but, but not the church. This is interesting because Christ said that Christ gave his life up for the church. And if something is so dear to Jesus' heart that he would lay down his life for it, surely it ought to be dear to us as well. And so we give ourselves also to the church. And so when you think about this thing called the church, I think, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing kind of the idea that that, uh, that, that's behind that statement. Because the statement, I love Jesus, but, but don't love the church, really there's, there's an undercurrent there that says, I mean, the church doesn't always look like Jesus. 
right? And so there's some tension there. And it's in some ways, theologically, it's a silly statement, but experientially and practically, like we get what they're saying, right? Like we get that sometimes it's not the church that's the problem, it's particular churches with particular people that are the problem. And so we talk about church hurt, and we talk about church wounds, and we talk about all these things. And it's not, it's not the idea of the church that Jesus died for that causes us to kind of push against us. It's, it's the problem that we've been hurt by individuals within the church that sometimes make us question the validity of the church. And really what speaks to two different categories that we use when we talk about the church. When we think about the church, there's two big categories. One is the universal church. And the universal church is kind of the big, the big C church that involves everyone and every believer in all times and all places. It includes, <clears throat> um, it includes those who are gathered all around the world. My dad uh, this week is in Thailand and he's worshiping with, uh, with Christians in, a, in a, uh, an orphanage over there. And he's interacting with some missionaries in Thailand and together we're a part of the church. This week I mailed, or uh, actually made a donation to Iglesia Reforma, which is our church partner in Guatemala. And quick confession, uh, we changed banks and I messed up and didn't actually get their transaction forwarded over. So we're supposed to have made a monthly commitment. And I realized recently that like we haven't given them anything in eight months and that's all on me. So the cool thing about that though, was I sent them a great big donation this week and I got, a, I got an email back this week going, holy moly, you know, this was awesome. <laughs> and so one of the things they were saying was <clears throat> they actually had a, a little bit of a shortage and had a rent payment that was due this month and they were gonna have to dip into savings. And Justin said, man, this covered it all, that's awesome. And so, I mean, you guys, you may not even realize that, but, and we give $1,000 a month to a church in Guatemala in order to help them get started and kind of get their feet on the ground. And, and God's doing some amazing things at that church in Guatemala. They're our brothers and sisters. We're all together and a part of this thing called the universal church. And so whether you're in Africa or India, uh, New Zealand, whether you're, uh, you're in Detroit or Dallas, uh, whether you're in South America or wherever you are on this planet, if you're someone who's been redeemed by Jesus, you're one of us. We're family. That's, that's the universal church and what it is when we think about what we refer to when we mean the universal church. You know, the beautiful thing about that is there's one baptism. The believers all over this planet have submerged in the waters to remember Christ's death for them and been raised up, to remember Christ's resurrection. And when we get to Easter Sunday, all of us are gonna be singing the praise of one rescuer, one savior, one Lord, one King. We've all been in the same baptismal waters, celebrating the same resurrection, or the same redemption that's available in Christ. And we all come to the same table and take bread and a cup and, and we, we take them and put them together. And we remember the sacrifice that Jesus had and we are all one people in one faith. And it's an amazing picture. And when you think about that and multiply that by the millions and then multiply that by the centuries, I mean, there's, a, there's a, a, an amazing onslaught of what God has built through the church. Now, the second category for church is the local church. So we talk about the universal church and then we talk about the local church. The local church is a subset of the universal church. It's, it's a local group of people in one city and in one time that is committed together to, to worship Jesus and to, to walk under the, the, the worship of the triune God together and live out the daily life of the church. In the Bible, the book of Acts really tells that story. In fact, it's an amazing thing that the, after Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension, that he leaves the disciples there and he says, stay and just pray until the spirit comes and the spirit comes and sends them out. And as they get sent out, God draws people to himself miraculously and saves them. And then they just start spontaneously populating these little gatherings of people called the church. And if you run through the book of Acts and I could, uh, part of me wanted to do that today, but you can run through and just look chapter by chapter how this group of people gathers. And then this other guy goes off over here and they gather and become the church and they go off to this other city and they gather and become this little church. And some are meeting in houses that are, they, they gather them all and some are meeting in temples and some are meeting in different places. But this thing ripples throughout the throughout the, the known world in these little pockets of people that are local churches gathered together as a part of the universal church that God is building through his son Jesus and by his spirit. And <clears throat> Acts 2 really gives us a picture of 
what, uh, what, what the church looks like. And this, in some ways, is intended to be kind of a model church for all churches that follow after that to follow. And it describes what the, the commitments of the local church look like. In Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, it says this, and they, just, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. So they're, they're committed to God and they're committed to one another. They're devoted to, the, to praying, they're devoting to the apostles' teaching and to the truth from God, but they're also committed to sharing meals and to supporting one another and caring for one another. It says, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. See, they were committed to God and committed to one another. They were personally engaged in the community, in the family of the church. And they were also personally invested in the mission of the church. And so you just get this picture of, of people that are, that are full of, worship for God and they're trusting his teaching, they're praying, they're connected with him, but they're also connected to one another. So they're, they're operating as a family, but then even beyond that, they're investing in his mission, seeing those who are in their city come in and meet Jesus and begin a relationship and be incorporated into the numbers. That's the picture that we're intended to have for what the church has. And it's amazing when you look at the scriptures and really the, the sweep of church history, there's always been this, two kind, this kind of twofold emphasis on this local body that's very committed to one another, but also they see themselves very much as a part of a broader universal church that Christ is building throughout the entire planet. And they hold those two things together. And that's what we mean when we begin to talk about the church. So we have the universal church and we have the local church. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've been saved by him, if he's birthed new life in you and begun something new in you, if his spirit has regenerated you so that you have new life and a promise of forever life and been sealed so that he promises to deliver you, you are a part of the universal church. You're immediately brought in and become a part of the, fa the, the global family of God that Christ is building as a part of the church. And so that's, that's an automatic that if you're saved, you become a part of the universal church. The local church though requires participation. It's not optional, but our investment in the local church really requires a commitment. It requires us to, to come and to be a part. And we talk about the local church and talk about membership. We're talking about what does it mean for you, like we saw in Acts 2, what does it mean for you to be personally engaged in the community and personally invested in the mission? Uh, how, do, how do you personally throw your life into this thing called the church? And so you're automatically as a believer in the universal, but in the local church, that's something you opt into. Uh, it, it's not optional in the sense that that it's up for grabs. Scripture tells us we should all be connected and you see that throughout the scriptures. But it's something we choose to participate in. Now, for, in order for you to do so, you kind of have to know who, who it is you're committing to be a part of, right? You wanna know like, what are the expectations? What am I, when I say I, I wanna be personally engaged in this community and personally invest in this mission, like, what does that mean? What does that look like? What do those things take? That's what we're gonna be unpacking over the next several weeks in this series, but also in our membership workshops that follow. It's just lay it out. Here's what that looks like at our church. Here's the way in which we're gonna live out those commitments and the life of the church in Acts 2. Here's how we're gonna live those out in 2009, or 2019 and we work through this. In fact, as we, as we think about this, one of the beautiful, beautiful things about Christ's strategy is that in his, in his building the universal church, but positioning and utilizing local churches in this, there's an amazing strategy at play. What he, what, he, what he effectively does is he allows each group of people to determine how is it they're gonna live out the big call of the church within that time and that place in a unique way. And so there's this fluidity and there's this momentum that can happen through the local church that, that really is a brilliant strategy that Christ has set up where he said, I want you to go and in this time and in this place. And so in Oklahoma City, in, in, in the, the, the 21st century, what does it look like for you to live out the call to make disciples? 
in this time and in this place. And he says, you figure that out for this time and this place. John Stott says part of the way we do that is through what he calls double listening. And so we, he says, we need to live with one ear to heaven saying, God, what is it that you're calling us to do and through your word and through your spirit? What is it that you're calling us to do? So we listen to God, but then we have also an ear to earth saying, what is it that our people are crying out for? What is it the people of our city need? And so we've got one ear saying, God, what is it you want to do? And one ear saying, what is, how do we bring that to our city? And together that in some ways shapes our vision and shapes our direction and, and guides the way in which we think about this task of the church. So as we've been thinking about this, I wanna introduce you just to a phrase that is we, we have a mission statement as a church that says we wanna make authentic disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God and the good of our, of our city. That, that is true and that is our mission. How particular are we gonna try to live that out? Uh, one of the ways that we wanna try to live that out over the next five years is we just think about where we are as a city, where we are as a nation, where we are as a culture in this world right now is we wanna help normal people wake up to the deep, meaningful life in Christ. We wanna help everyday people wake up to the deep, meaningful life that Christ wants to give them. And in some ways, that's, I think, the, the challenge of our time. The challenge of the era in which we live is that we live in an era that, that tends to the shallow, that tends to the busy, that tends to be very distracted, that tends to run in multiple directions and has a hard time going deep in any way. We have a hard time committing to deep relationships. We have a hard time committing to deep life of prayer. We have a hard time committing to a deep life of study of the word. We have a hard time of living in deep relationship with God's people. We have a hard time living in depth in almost any area of our life. And this really is grounded in the scriptures. Would you look with me at Colossians 2? Colossians, one of the epistles in the New Testament. And these really are verses that I would ask you to memorize over the course of the next five weeks as we think about this series. Colossians chapter two, verses six to seven says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, in the Lord, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. We received Christ Jesus by grace. We received Jesus through the gospel. We received Christ Jesus not because we were spiritual heroes or spiritual, uh, spiritually excellent or spiritually above everyone else. We received Christ Jesus because God loved us and he gave himself for us. He chose us. We didn't seek him, he sought us. We didn't earn our way, he earned our way. And so we, as we received Christ by grace, we need to learn to walk in grace as well. But you notice that the way in which it describes that, it says rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. And we need, we need to find a life that's, that's rooted in Christ in such a way that it produces amazing fruit in our life and, and growth. That as we abide in him, as we're rooted in him and established in him, there's something that matures in us, that grows in us, that stirs in us so that it produces something beautiful and good. You notice we called this series Growing Oaks. Um, how quickly do oaks grow? Slowly. We're mourning right now because we, got, we had two that were hit by lightning in the last couple of weeks. And so we had, a, had one lightning bolt that is killed, just splintered two of our trees. In fact, counted one piece of wood 180 feet away. I mean, literally five and six pieces of wood just scattered uh, 100, 150 feet across our yard and they're still there because we have not yet gone to pick them up. Thank you to uh, my boys. We need to get on that. No. Uh, we, we, our neighbors are gonna start calling us soon. We've got some work to do. But, and those oaks can't be replaced quickly because oaks take a long time to grow. When you think about an oak, a tree takes root. It, it reaches deep into the soil and it, it digs and it, it probes and it, and it continues to move out until it finds nourishment in order to, to bring something up that's going to, to build it up. And as it does, then the trunk begins to grow and the branches begin to grow and the foliage shows up and life happens. It's why every year in the winter, you see the leaves go off and there's kind of this, this reminder that this thing is not, is not just inevitable. 
but that there's something, there, there's a process of life that's happening here. And as this thing kind of ebbs and flows through the seasons, you come around to the spring and every spring you look out at those trees and you think, man, are the leaves going to show up again? And they do. It's a reminder that there is growth that's happening over time. Um, how many of you have ever seen your oak tree in your yard grow? You didn't see it overnight. Like if you went out and sat on your porch and sat there and kind of tapped your foot and just waited, you're going to be there a long time to see any, any real progress. Uh, but what you do know is if you've lived in one place for a long time, uh, trees that once were small begin to grow and get bigger and bigger over time. And we want to be established and grow in the same kind of way. The same is true of us. That when we're deeply rooted, when we're constantly nourished, when there's, when there's nourishment that's coming up from, from good soil in which we've planted ourselves, it's going to strengthen our lives and it's gonna cause us to flourish and produce good fruit in our lives. And so as we think about this, I think it's important for us to, to just recognize it's, hard, it's a hard thing to happen or to see happen in this world. Um, it, it's not a flashy thing. It's oftentimes a slow thing. It's oftentimes a methodical thing. The church is not something that springs up overnight. It's something that, that I think as we're rooted produces fruit over time. Now, why did we pick that, that analogy for kind of this time in our world? Uh, let me share with you, I want to share with you just a couple quotes from a book. This is a book called Disruptive Witness uh, by a guy named Alan Noble. And he's a professor. Actually, I stumbled across this book, had heard about it. Uh, you guys know how I feel about Tim Keller. Tim Keller said this is one of the best books he's read in the last couple of years. I already had it before that, but that made it go to the top of my list. Uh, it turns out he lives here in the state of Oklahoma. He's actually going to be with us on, on May the 5th. And so he's going to come in. Dr. Noble is going to come in and share with us as part of our service. But he's just written a really good work that helps us kind of look at our times and look at the time in which we live. And so I want to share with you just a couple of thoughts that he has. He talks about two major trends that we see here in our world. As you think about the world in which we live, there's a couple of big trends that, that we see shaping the way in which we live. First is uh, the, the practice of continue, continuous engagement in immediately gratifying activities that resist reflection and meditation. Here's what he means by that. Man, we run so fast. And we, we usually are running doing multiple things at once. I don't have my phone up here. But usually, like, I can't go anywhere without my phone. If I get up at the office and go to the restroom, I'm usually checking in with something in that little, like, 50-foot walk, making sure I didn't miss something on Twitter. I'm going somewhere else. I'm looking. Uh, you guys, not me, you guys uh, get to a stoplight, and you pull your phone out and check it, don't you? Um, my boys don't, I don't, some of y'all do, I know. Um, joking, of course, but we, we can't get from one place to another, even in our car, without checking our phone to see what's happened. And so we run from one place to another, and there's this instant gratification, this constant movement, constant action, and constant bit of, uh, bits of information that come our way. And here's what one of the dangers is on that, that everything becomes equally as important. So when you're posting on your, your feed and you go back and look at it, you've got your, your lunch, you've got your, your kid's birth, you've got uh, you know, your, something that happened at work, a cool car you saw driving down the road, uh, someone funny, something funny that happened over here, Easter Sunday, and something else that happened. And all those things are right there on your Twitter feed and they all look the same, don't they? And so what happens in that is everything gets really thin. So now all of a sudden, whatever you ate for lunch looks as meaningful as the birth of your child looks as meaningful as the resurrection of Jesus, looks as meaningful as the hot rod that the guy down the street just bought, looks as meaningful and everything begins to get kind of thin and, and shallow. And it all looks that way. And we just keep moving from one thing to another, to another, to another. And it's hard to differentiate. And what are the things that are really trivial? And what are the things that are really essential about our lives? And so this constant movement and activity that we have really shapes the way we think and the way we operate in our world. The second thing is what he calls the growth of secularism, defined as a state in which theism is seen as one of many viable choices for human fullness and satisfaction, and in which transcendent, the transcendent feels less and less plausible. See, the, the problem there is that in secularism, it really is a world, in, and that's the world in which we, in which we live, that, that God has not been completely rejected. It's just that he's on an equal playing field with every other option in the world. And so we, have, we make what we call lifestyle choices. And in making lifestyle choices, it's like putting on a coat. 
And so we, we don't take our gender as something that's been determined, but we think gender is something we get to determine. So we put a lifestyle choice on gender. We put a lifestyle choice on our faith. You know, I might like a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of that, a little bit of this over here, and I'll take a little bit of Jesus too, and I'm gonna make a lifestyle choice about my faith, whatever fits well and feels well for me. And we make a lifestyle choice about our politics. We make a lifestyle choice about, uh, about whether we're vegan or not, not vegan or, or beef eaters. Like, are we Ron Swanson or are we totally vegan? That's a lifestyle choice. And we put it out to the world saying, here's who I am. But there's an assumption that goes underneath all that, which is I'm a self-determined being free from anything outside of me to, to decide whoever I want to be. And I can put on any cloak I want to dress myself up, which means I can also take it off and put on something else in the years ahead or in the, in the next week or the next month or the, the following decade. And so we have these lives that are, we, we desire to be these entirely free, entirely self-determined beings in which nothing from outside of us can speak into it. That creates a certain world. And when you think about what does it look like for us to make disciples in that world, and it's gonna require us to unpack some things and to live a little bit differently. That world works incredibly against the idea of, of reflection, of meditation, of deep thought. All of those things push against us and in some ways inhibit or try to prohibit us from thinking deeply and reflecting deeply on our lives and about how we've been formed and about what God would have us to do. And so we want to create a church in which we are encouraged to think deeply on these things. Um, one other thing, Jesus shares in a parable. Uh, it's an amazing, uh, amazing, one of the amazing parables that Jesus, that Jesus taught us was the parable of the seeds. And in the parable of the seeds, he talks about uh, different seeds that are cast and the seed is the truth that God has and that seeds falls on different soils. And as it does, some of the seeds fall on, fall on the path and they're eaten by the birds. Uh, those, those are the ones that didn't understand the word. It fell on shallow ground. It didn't really penetrate. So they didn't really understand uh, even though truth was cast in their direction. Others fell on rocky ground. And those represented those who received the word, but when suffering comes, they pull away. Others fell, on, uh, fell among the thorns. And when they did, when the thorns grew up, they were choked. And that's the worldly desires. And then there, lastly, there was seeds that fell on the good soil. And seeds that fell on the good soil, it said penetrated deeply and they grew and, and produced fruit a hundredfold. Friends, what, which soil do you want your life to be planted in? That's the question that Jesus was asking us as we think about, as we think about our lives, as we think about how we wanna be shaped. Uh, do you wanna be one who springs up just a little bit of joy but then falls away quickly? One of those who allows the world to choke you out, one of those who allows the hurts of life to push you out so that what God wants to produce in you doesn't really grow? Or do you wanna be one of those who's deeply rooted in good soil that nourishes you and produces fruit a hundredfold? Well, it's obvious where Jesus is pointing us, right? So as we think about a church, what does it look like for us to cultivate deep and meaningful life so that we are planting the people of our church in good soil that nourishes them and brings about growth a hundredfold? That's the mission. That's what we wanna be about. And that's the idea here. It's interesting, uh, Alan, I wanna read one last section here. He says, unlike the gentle act of sowing seeds, a plow's work is violent, disruptive, and exhausting. Saying, you know, if we're gonna be good farmers, we're gonna throw the seed and we're gonna pay attention to the soil. Meaning we may preemptively need to go in and break the soil up. The hard soil, we may need to till it. We may need to try to break it up. We may take time and effort and energy and effectiveness to try to cultivate something so that something good can grow in the men are midst. And he says, the plow, when it hits the soil, is violent, disruptive, and exhausting. It unsettles the ground. It softens by tearing up. When a field is plowed, it no longer appears the same. The hard surface is broken to reveal the vulnerable but fertile womb of the earth. It's much easier to simply cast the seeds and hope for a harvest, but a good farmer knows that the ground needs cultivation. And this is what we want to be about as a church. We want to create a church where we're seeking out the good soil and throwing the seeds of God's truth and asking God to bring about growth in each of our lives that produces that which is really good. But our world makes it difficult for that to happen because we tend to live, live in a world that moves so quickly. We don't stop to think deeply about anything. We don't stop to till up the soil and allow things to penetrate at a level that, that, that has brought about deep reflection in us 
that's actually going to nourish and reshape our, the way in which we live and the way in which we operate. And can I give you one example for how this, this plays out in our world? I want to give you one example. I think it ties into what we say about the church. It's interesting when you think about the church, uh, the, the scriptures overall, uh, we often talk about being Christians. When you look at the church in the scriptures, though, there's actually another word that takes place or precedence far more often than, than the word Christian. And that word is saints. It's interesting, Paul in Ephesians 1 talks about the saints. He says, I have, or talks about the church of Ephesus, this local church. And he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. This is kind of the definition of what it looks like to, uh, to be a part of the church, that you love Jesus and you love his people. You love the saints. Let me ask you this. How many of you, and I want, I want you to raise your hand, how many of you feel like a saint? None of you? No one? No one goes, dude, I am a saint of saints. Like I'm on top of the mountain. If there's a Mount Rushmore of the church, my face is gonna be on it because I am up for sainthood. This is gonna be where I, where I kind of how you should view me. See, the, there's a problem here, right? The scripture says that all of us who have trust Jesus are saints. But how many of you feel like saints? Not a one of you raised your hand. What does that tell us about, about our faith? You don't see yourself like Jesus sees you. You don't believe what this says about you. You know why? Because the church at large has veered off course. You know that phrase we use called saints? It came to become some, to mean something different. None of us think about ourselves as this kind of glorious Christian, but when you think about sainthood, we think about this idea that saints are kind of these heavenly heroes. They're these people that, you know, they've been burned at the stake. They've done something amazing. They've done something and they've been set aside for the hall of fame and none of us really measure, but there's a couple people scattered throughout history that measure up, that get to be called saints. And you know what? None of us are, are that, that man or that woman. So we're, we're in a different category. That's only for the hyper-spiritual people. But you know what? The scriptures don't, doesn't paint that picture at all. In fact, you know, early in the church, we, the, the church called everyone saints because your sainthood was determined by Jesus and what he did for you. He made you holy. He made you righteous. He made you new. He determined that you were loved by God and would forever be adopted into his family as one of his. You're a saint, even when you don't feel like it. You know, the Apostles' Creed, the creed that is most commonly used in churches, there's a phrase in there that talks about that we believe in the communion of saints. Do we? Why did we not raise our hands? Friend, let me ask you this right now. Are you a saint? Raise your hand. Do you know Jesus? Your hand better be up. Look at your neighbor and just say, you are a saint. If you're married to that neighbor, say it again. They need to hear it. Okay? Now, see, here's what's, here's what's difficult about the saints. When you think about this idea, it almost makes no sense to us anymore. That, uh, you know, when you think about this idea of, of saints, you just kind of, what you want to say to Paul is, dude, have you been to my church? Like, have you seen the messed up people that go there? Like, you really think they're saints. Do you, do you understand the kinds of things we, we deal with? When you, you know, you look at your spouse and you think, do you live with the same person? I mean, do you know the person I live with? Like, you're, you're saying they're a saint? Well, because it's not just determined by who we are. I think the idea is it's, it's meant to, go, to, to make us do a double take. It's meant to push against us and make us kind of disrupt the way we think about it to view one another as saints. Eugene Peterson says it this way. When we hear the word used without qualification, saints, and used to describe the mixed up bag of people that is us, it creates dissonance. Paul deliberately chooses a word that identifies us by what God does in and for us, not by what we do for God. See, what makes you a saint is what God has done for you, not what you did for God. That changes the whole dynamic. That changes our understanding of how we are to view ourselves and how we ought to view those around us. He goes on to say, um, Paul deliberately chooses a word that identifies us by what God does in and for us, not by what we do for God. He re-identifies us as creatures of God saved by Jesus, formed in holiness by his spirit. He's retraining our imaginations to understand ourselves, not in terms 
of how we feel about ourselves, not in terms of how others treat us, but how God feels about us and treats us. Not as our parents or our teachers or our physicians or our employers or our children define us, but how God defines us. Not in terms derived from our employment or our education or our physical appearance or our achievements or our failures, but God. I want to give you a new word for yourself, he says. You are a saint. Now, does that change the way you view your days? Change the way you view your relationship with the Lord? Change the way you view one another? So what it means is God has a soft spot for people like us who don't have it all together. And he loves us because he loves us, not because we are so lovely. That means we can't lose that kind of love. That means we can't, it won't be fickle. It won't come in and go away. Let me show you one other I want to show you one other thing here. Um, oftentimes we start the church. Um, any of you know this family here? Uh, think about going on a vacation. You know, when you, when you start the journey, it all looks really pretty and, and nice, doesn't it? But it doesn't take very long for it to look like this. Right? <laughs> see, you see, this is the way churches work too. You start off and everything looks good. No one has BO. No one's messed up. No one's, uh, no, no one's kind of rubbed up against each other. No one's sat in the back seat and complained the entire time. You haven't had all the bickering and the arguing and the fighting. No one's messed up your meal. No one's messed up your, uh, your, your, the, the song. No one picks music for the radio that you don't like. You haven't had any of those things when you first start. And so everything looks really good, but it doesn't take very long before things get to get, become a little rocky. And you know, churches are the same way. Churches operate the same way. You got a handout on your chair as you came in and had a diagram on it. And I want to point this out and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time going here. But as you look at this, you think about our family vacation as a church. Here's what happens in the life of a church. It starts off and everything's interesting. You're like, oh, I know that guy. We used to, our kids played Little League together and I knew him. We, we worked together years ago. And I remember that, that gal, we were in a, this, this ladies group for a time and this other Bible study and everyone looks interesting. You're like, hey, that guy, he, I saw him post something online and he's into cars and I'm into cars. And so that's, that's pretty cool. And things begin to get more interesting. You get to know someone, you actually hang out with them. You're like, man, that was fun. I think I have a friend here. That's cool. And things start to look really good. And then you kind of move to this place called Awesome Hill. And on Awesome Hill, everything's nice. And you're like, man, we're killing it. Like God's doing good stuff. We're getting to know each other. We're getting in the word together. We're really enjoying everything. And from your perspective down the hill, you look up and it looks like everything just keeps going up, doesn't it? And so then you begin to take that journey. You begin to walk. And all of a sudden one day you're like, oh, and you step off into Cruddy Valley. And in Cruddy Valley, you realize, man, like that guy that was so cool, like he's kind of jacked up sometimes. Like he's, he's, he's sort of self-centered. He's selfish. And that, that gal, she gossips sometimes. And you know that, that person that they talk all about grace, but as soon as I did that one thing, man, they were like, bam, right on top of me going, why did you do that? And it just, ah, and everything gets a little bit unsettled and you find yourself in Cruddy Valley. And the, the, uh, the point here is that, that we're not going to be perfect. That we're not, we're not saints because we did everything just right. We didn't come into the church because we were holier than everyone else. In fact, we were all in need of grace. That's what brought us into the church. And so we need to expect Cruddy Valley to come. It shouldn't shock us when it does. We just need to expect that the person sitting next to you who's a saint, loved by God, saved by Jesus, and empowered as part of his church, that they're still a sinner. In the midst of their sin, sometimes we're going to butt heads and we're going to rub each other the wrong way. And what happens so often in a world where we don't reflect and we don't think deeply is that when we get to those places, we, we, we bail out. We step into Credit Valley and you're like, oh, this is not what I thought I signed up for. I'm out. And we step out of that place. But what God wants to do is he wants to take us to the other side, to Family Mountain. Because in, in a real family, you know everyone's broken. You know that they don't have it all together. You know kind of what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are. You learn to appreciate the beauty that God has built in them. And you learn to give grace in the places where they still need to be shaped by God. But you understand that we're all saints. And as those who are saints, and we're all, we're all family. We're all united as brothers and sisters. And so this is the place where we don't give up on one another. 
where we don't bail out on one another, where we stay the course and we continue to seek him. And in doing so, we know that one day he's going to make us, make all things new. And he's, going to, he's going to make us all look just like Jesus. And until that day, we love each other and give grace until we get there and encourage, continue to bring truth. But in the midst of that, we practice grace and forgiveness. So here's what I want us to do. Do you see how that works though? Do you see how it's easy to have a shallow view of those of us in the church and not really a biblical view? And how it takes a little bit of reflection, a little bit of work to get below the surface and say, you know what, we're all saints. We're all saved. We're all brothers and sisters. And, in, and we're not saved because we're perfect, but we're saved because he was perfect and perfectly applied, gave his grace to us. Because of that, that, that shapes the way in which we interact with one another. So here's what I want us to do. Um, we're gonna move to communion. And as we do, uh, we're, going to, we're going to actually recite the Apostles' Creed, which does two things. It reminds us that we're part of the universal church. And this has been recited for centuries, uh, down through the centuries and throughout every continent. And so we're gonna recite this together as a part of the church. And as we do, we're also, there's a line in there that says, we believe in the communion of saints. And we're gonna say it like we mean it, like we believe that we are, that we are together and that we are saints. So would you stand with me? And as we, as we read this, I want you guys to read it with me and I want you to read it. And this is just a, a recital of that which we believe. And as we do, man, we're, we're trusting that as a part of the universal church in this little place called a local church called Redemption, that God uh, is forever in our midst and that Christ is building his church. So read with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.